The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. So, we must burn the books, Montag. I value white whale. Show us your crooked jaw. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. Must I do? It doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. Peace. I hate the word. As I hate hell, all Montagues and thee. And therein, as the bard would tell us, lies the rub. In his book on writing, Ray Bradbury shares about a time when he was nine years old, when he was super into this comic strip called Buck Rogers. I uh, had to go look it up. This comes from 1929. It's a color comic strip. And you can picture a strapping young dude in a red suit flying around the galaxy and spaceships and having these wonderful adventures. It is Buck Rogers to the rescue. Many of us might be more familiar with Flash Gordon, which was actually a spinoff or a ripoff of Buck Rogers, who was the original. The point is, at nine, Ray Bradbury loved Buck Rogers. He collected the comics, he cut them from the newspaper, and he'd read them, and of course, like any good story or any good narrative, it transported him to another world where he felt like he was free and had these amazing inspirational experiences. But then Ray goes to school, and his peers tell him that Buck Rogers is no good. He's criticized, they tell him that Buck Rogers is for kids, and that he's too old to be involved in such stuff. So, Ray Bradbury goes home and, under the weight of peer pressure, tears up his Buck Rogers comics. About a month goes by, and Ray Bradbury can't stand it anymore. And he essentially says, you know what? Forget you guys. I would rather be with Buck Rogers than any of you condescending jerks. I'm putting words in Ray Bradbury's mouth, but you get the vibe that that's how he felt at this time. And what does he do? He goes back to collecting comics, and he says, sure, if I have to be a loner, fine. I love Buck Rogers, and I'm not going to suppress it, and I'm not going to hide it. He goes on to say, I don't want to overestimate all this, but I love that nine-year-old, whoever he was. Without him, I could not have survived to introduce these essays. I think Ray Bradbury uses very strong language when he says he could not have survived to write these essays, but any creative personality type will tell you that if they try to suppress or to avoid the, these urges in this, this strong pull to create, it does feel like living a miserable life. And it feels like you won't be able to survive, that you can't breathe. Ray Bradbury goes on to say, So I collected comics, fell in love with carnivals and world fairs, and I began to write. Ray Bradbury's body of work is rather extensive. And he's lauded as one of the most important American authors of all time. And I have to agree that he is one of the masters. He is the master of the metaphor, master of the short story. And he wrote some very amazing things that I have found tons of inspiration in. He's probably my favorite author. It's either him or Tolkien. Because from both of them, I have drawn so much inspiration. And by virtue of Bradbury, I guess I have Buck Rogers to thank for all of these beautiful writings that have come down through the years. And as anyone who's read extensively Ray Bradbury's work, you know that sci-fi is a big thing of his, coming straight from Buck Rogers. And he mentions carnivals and fairs. I'm thinking something wicked this way comes. If you've read it, it's all about a haunted carnival. These things wound up weaving their way into Ray Bradbury's work. And that's why he looks back and says, man, that nine-year-old self who was willing to be a loner so that he could immerse himself in this Buck Rogers world, that showed a lot of character. And because of it, Ray Bradbury goes on to become an author, a writer. So this leads me to my question of today. Why did Buck Rogers speak so deeply to Ray Bradbury? when it clearly did not speak so deeply to his peers. I think we probably all experienced this. I hope we have anyway. There are things in this world, as we're talking about stories, I'm obviously going to be focusing on stories. There are books and movies and music and plays that just grip us and they just stand out to us. I'm sure we could all list something. In fact, I, I've seen videos on social media that ask people, what's, what's a movie that you're embarrassed to admit that you like? What's a book that you don't tell anybody that you like, but secretly deep down, it's like your favorite. And people will list any number of things. 
But the question is why? For any creative type, I think it's something that needs to be answered, even though there will never be a perfect answer for this. But it's the, it's the effort put into figuring out why something stands out to you that can help you so much in your writing. There have been plenty of chapters in my life where I feel like I am searching for inspiration to know what to work on next because I need that craving, that excitement that comes from creation. So where does inspiration come from? Well, on the one hand, I can think there are probably people that are very logical. The inspiration comes to us when we're surrounded by certain things, we're naturally going to gravitate towards them. But my own personal life experience just throws that theory completely away. Because I grew up in Rexburg, Idaho, and had dreams of becoming a filmmaker and a writer. And there was nothing in my immediate surrounding that said that that was possible or that that's something that I could do. A little bit later in this podcast, I'm going to share about my friend Jeremy, who grew up a very similar lifestyle as me, and yet his interests were wildly different than mine. He's one of my best friends, but the things that he gravitated towards were so wildly different than mine. So it still begs the question, where does inspiration come from? Why does something draw us in where it doesn't draw everyone else in? To help understand this question, I'd actually like to share a little snippet from Jordan Peterson. Here's a, here's a funny story. So I was talking to one of my Patreon people online this week, and he said he's a, he was a committed atheist, and that's fine. You know, lots of atheists are very honest people, and they're atheists because they don't know how to reconcile what they know with traditional claims, let's say, and they're not willing to just mangle them together, you know. And there might be cynicism, all that associated with it as well, but he said he, was, he, said he was entranced by these biblical lectures, you know, which is pretty weird. And he said, if someone would have told him a year ago that he was going to like, be obsessed with a sequence of biblical lectures, he would have told them that they were mad. And so we had a bit of a discussion about that, because this is an interesting thing, you know. And he, he mentioned this. He said, it was something like, you don't choose your interests, they choose you. And that's really worth thinking about too, man, because, you know, it's really hard to get interested in something you're not interested in, even if you know there's a good reason for it. You know, you're studying for an exam, you find the material boring, you know, anything will be more interesting than, than the studying. Even though you know that that's what you need to do, you can't voluntarily grab yourself by the scruff of the neck, let's say, and shake yourself and say, sit down and concentrate. Your mind will just go everywhere. But then if you're interested in something, and even if it's something you shouldn't be interested in, because that happens all the time, then it's like you're a laser focused man. You can pay attention forever. You can work until you're exhausted. You won't even notice it. And you remember everything. It's like, okay, if you can't control your interest, what does? And man, I tell you, you can think about that for a very long time. So Jung talked about the spirit Mercurius. You know, Mercury is the winged messenger of the gods. And, and here's how he conceptualized it psychologically. He thought this is what the, the ancient people who thought about Mercury as the winged messenger of the gods were trying to state psychologically. You know, your, your interest flits around. It's like there's something that captures it and that moves your interest from place to place. You know, like if you walk into a bookstore, you'll get interested in a particular book. It's as if the book grips you. Because you don't know why you're interested in that. You might, but often you don't know why you're interested in that book. And you know, your interest is flitting around. And so that's Mercury. The thing that makes your interest flick, flicker around is Mercury, the winged messenger of the gods. And Mercury is the messenger of the gods because it's the things behind the scenes psychologically that are manipulating your attention. And for Jung, those were equivalent in some sense to the lost gods. And so for Jung, your, your interest was being manipulated behind the scenes by unseen forces that were associated with your characterological development across time. That was the manifestation of the self. So the self is this, the, the potential you, let's say. And the way it operates in the present is by gripping your interest and directing it somewhere. And that's part of the instinct of self-realization. It's a mind-boggling idea, man, really. It's so I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I understand all of Carl Jung's ideas. They are profound and deep. And much of what he talked about actually dealt very closely with narrative and storytelling to the point that Joseph Campbell's work, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, is very much inspired by many of the things that Carl Jung teaches. But I love this idea, right? Your interests choose you. You don't get to choose what your interest. It's almost like this instinctual thing that happens inside of us. In another discourse, 
uh, Jordan Peterson expounds a little bit more on this idea that, that we don't choose our interests, they choose us. He actually calls it a phenomenon. What he says is that as science as a whole has spent a long time figuring out the physical world around us. In fact, the past 200 years, we are living in an age where we are benefiting from so many of the discoveries of how the physical world works to the point that we can manipulate it to do things that we need it to do. Technology has reached heights that have never been seen before and we are constantly benefiting from them. But as he's talking about this phenomenon, he says that an area of science that we haven't delved too deeply in is the psychology, the, the inner person, that you know, we only know so much about how our internal system works, how the spiritual or the subconscious part of us works. And because of that, there's a lot of mystery. And because of that, he calls this a phenomenon. But what he essentially says is we are bombarded every day by so much information. It's really curious to see why certain things stand out to us and others not. Why do some people get hooked on a new game and others who are equally exposed don't, don't have the same reaction? Why do things catch our eye? And if you start to pay attention to this and start noticing when something catches your eye, you'll realize that it seems completely random or unfounded. I have come up with the term for this, this idea, this phenomenon. I call it the sparkle. When something just pulls you in, when it catches your eye, and you know that this is something you can fall in love with. And, and, and we are going to try and use words to explain an experience that is actually really, really difficult to put into words, which I think is part of the reason that, that Jordan Peterson just calls it a phenomenon. Because it's so hard to explain what is happening. I mean, Ray Bradbury goes so far as to say he couldn't survive without these interests. Um, we call it falling in love. We call it being passionate about something. I, I know as a writer, whenever somebody describes my, my writing as a hobby, uh, my uh, cackles raise because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not a hobby. This is like my thing, my everything, the thing that I do that keeps me awake and alert and happy and thriving without it. I am nothing. Do not relegate my writing to be just a hobby. So the question is why? Why does something grab your attention and pull you in so tightly that you can't let go that you're just like, ah, I have to go watch Lord of the Rings 10 times even though those they're three hour or four hour movies depending if you're watching the extended versions or not. Why does something grip you so deeply? Jordan Peterson postulates that these phenomena are linked to a deeper, more spiritual connection inside of us. Um, if you don't go, want to go the spiritual route, perhaps you would say it's part of our subconscious. It's something, and, and that's where Jung's words are super awesome in that clip where he says there's this external entity, this, this Mercury figure that's the messenger of the gods that's kind of directing you to essentially say, hey, this is important. This is of interest. This is something that, that will actually benefit you. And Jordan says it will ultimately lead to something that is spiritually fulfilling, and at the end of the day, what we all want truly is fulfillment. He calls it the instinct of self-realization. Because you're going along and something catches your eye. You see the sparkle and you're drawn in. And as you dive deeper into that thing, you find your life becomes more and more fulfilling. You find like there's a piece of you that was missing that you didn't know was there. And it just fills that gap. And that is the phenomenon because we can't explain why it happens. And as I said earlier, I, I, I agree with Jordan Peterson that I do not think that there is a logical explanation to this. I think there can only be a spiritual explanation to this. Or like you said, something deeper that, that understands the cosmos existence uh, at a more profound level than we do on a day-to-day -day basis is directing our attention. I'd like to give you some examples of this. I have a friend, his name's Jeremy. In middle school, we went to an assembly and there was a group there to put on a performance and they came out with jump ropes and they did tricks, they did cool things with double dutch uh, you know, dude, speed jump roping, and they put on this performance with jump ropes. And I was like, huh, that's cool. That was kind of fun to watch. Glad I got out of math class for that. Well, my friend Jeremy, and I didn't know him at the time, we met later in, in, in high school, but he sees these people jump roping. Boom, the sparkle. 
this is something of deep interest to him and he's instantly drawn to it. Jeremy dives in, he joins the jump rope team, and he has never looked back. He spent his entire middle school, high school, collegiate experience with this experience on the side of jump roping. And I, I can't tell you how much success they have had as jump ropers. And I know because you hear like, what does that even mean to be a successful jump roper? There's this whole other world that is the jump roping community that most people aren't even aware exists. To share a brief list, Jeremy was a judge at the World Jump Rope Championship. He was a finalist in the speed jump roping. And I'm sure Jeremy's going to listen to this and be like, you're using all the wrong terminology. But the speed jump roping where they count how many times in 60 seconds you can jump rope. He's a finalist in that. In, in the world of all jump ropers out there, he's one of the finalists, one of the best. Okay, it gets even better. He and a group of friends that uh, call themselves the Summer Wind Skippers, they end up going on the hit TV show, America's Got Talent. And they go on and they do performances. You can look it up on YouTube. You can go watch these videos, Summer Wind Skippers. And they put on these bomb jump rope performances in on national TV. And they're actually a finalist. They make it through several rounds on America's Got Talent because they're some of the top jump ropers in the world. Pause. What does this have to do with anything? Because I was given the same opportunity to get into jump rope that my friend Jeremy was, but it didn't sparkle for me. It sparkled for him and it led him on a path where he made friends, he traveled the world. I remember all through high school, he was going on trips, national, international. He's top jump rope in Germany and England, all over the place. Because of this, this sparkle that caught his attention and said, hey, jump roping, that is awesome. So what are we driving at here? The question that I made earlier, where does inspiration come from? It comes from the sparkle. It comes from the things that draw our interest. And while we may not be able to pin down why exactly one thing draws someone interest and doesn't draw someone else's, there's one thing to be sure. When you follow the sparkle, when something just grabs you and is like, this is cool, and you pursue that path and move down that road, you are sure to find more life fulfillment, like I said. And if you are a writer, you are going to find the inspiration you need in order to create. And my advice would be to not be closed off to these ideas, to not be closed off to your interests, to allow your mind to wander when it feels like it needs to wander, to allow yourself to pursue paths that may not seem logical at first, because you're ultimately going to be very, very rewarded for those things in terms of what it does to you for your craft. So where do you find your inspiration? In the things that interest you, the sparkle. So as I thought about this, uh, this idea that our interests hold the key to what will really fulfill us in life and thinking about why this message resonated with me so much, I was, I was reminded of an experience my brother had and I asked him, his name's Clayton, and I asked him to hop on and if he would let me interview him, uh, something you should know, I didn't prepare him at all. I didn't let him know what the context of this conversation would be. I just wanted a totally unfiltered responses from him uh, to kind of illuminate this idea and see if that we could find place in this idea through his experience. Um, so I called him up on Zoom. We did a brief interview and the following is how that interview went. Okay, so we are recording. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. And I'm really interested to, to share a little bit of the details that I already know about uh, your experience with getting into skateboarding. Okay. Um, so let's start off by asking, um, how did you get into skateboarding? It was a crazy whim. I did it on a whim. I was uh, at the mall. We were waiting for a book signing. Um, actually, Brandon Mull. Um, was at our was at our mall, and uh, so I was I was wandering around the mall uh, while we waited for like the the thing to start. And I walked past this skate shop, and I saw in the window this uh, reissued skateboard, so it's the '80s shape and style. And I was like, "Whoa!" Hold on, Does, for the sake of listeners who aren't familiar with that, can you describe a little bit what that means? The '80s shape. 
the 80s style yeah so um uh skateboards in the 80s looked very different than they do today um they're they were uh they're wider they were 10 inches wide they're a little shorter and they only had a single kick right modern skateboard kicks up both at the front of the board and the back the old school boards only kick up in the back right they only have a kick tail no kick nose um so this might be something we recognize from like back to the future or exactly thinking like the ninja turtles movie when you know, uh, Mike is, no donatello is riding through the donatello is riding a skateboard like that too that's right yeah. yep okay so keep going i interrupted yeah you. So, so you saw so the I saw board and, it, and it leapt out at you yeah i mean i saw it immediately and I, I i should maybe give some background you know i was i was in my 30s um uh about to start grad school uh kind of a change of, of pace in my life and I had never, I hadn't been thinking about skateboarding. I hadn't been thinking about doing it. It's not something I did. I, I kind of messed around with it as a kid for like a month or two, but, but you know, it was, wasn't into it. Um, not even wasn't into it, but, but got out of it really quickly, right? Never learned to do much. So it was, it was out of nowhere, right? That, that I saw this board and that it spoke to me in this really alluring way because I wasn't, you know, I had, it's not something I had been like thinking, maybe I had to like find a new hobby or anything like that. It was just like, what the, they're making those boards again. And I just like wandered into the skate shop and I went to like one of the guys and started talking to him and I left with that skateboard. <laughs> um, and, you know, Mandy, my wife just, teased me she was like what did you just spend like on two hundred dollars on a skateboard really you that's just gonna sit in the garage like you really think you're gonna use that and I was like yeah I know I I probably it's a weird whim I probably shouldn't have done that but I I don't know I just I couldn't I couldn't leave without you know without buying this thing it just it just grabbed me and uh but uh ultimately um the, the teasing ended up being, uh, what, 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 what would I say unearned, uh, because, because I did start to use it, uh, immediately. Um, and from pretty much that day forward, I was just, was just completely, uh, taken by skateboarding. And I, 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 I skate every day and, um, you know, as a, as a guy in my thirties, trying to learn tricks and trying to learn how to ride, you know, skate empty swimming pools at at skate parks and that kind of thing. Like, you know, I've broken my ankle and I've, uh, uh, taken countless, you know, hard slams and, and had concussions and all sorts of things. I mean, I've, 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 you know, I've, I've earned every, every step I've taken with this, but, but it's, it's, it's kind of an obsession now that is, is now, you know, six years later or something. Uh, yeah, six years later now, uh, it's something I'm still, still very, very much obsessed with, still very interested in. Describe to me a little bit the level of obsession. Um, well, uh, so my love for skateboarding is, is 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 like almost strictly limited to 1980s skateboarding right so i've i've uh uh since that day i've continued to ride almost exclusively skateboards of that size and shape i've gotten really into the history of the skating from that era um i'm i'm very well versed in like all of the pros from that period i have the you know Bones Brigade documentary memorized because I've watched it so many times. I've also watched so, all the throw out some names from the Bones Brigade documentary. There's a few that, that like I Lance Mountain, recognize. Little Tony Hawk, Steve Caballero, uh, Mike McGill, Tommy Guerrero, you know, and uh, other guys, uh, Mark Gator Rogowski, Christian Hosoy. I mean, these guys have become heroes for me, and it's I don't know. It's this, it's this weird thing where I feel like, so I was, I was so little in the eighties. Um, I was such a little kid that I was, 
you know, I wasn't old enough to do this, but I do remember the older guys in our neighborhood writing these boards. And I do remember thinking that's really cool. And I know I got exposed at some point to the whole phenomenon in the culture, probably through movies like Back to the Future and, and just, just being around and, and seeing these things. And so I think it, you know, it, it put something inside of me back then that I was too young, too small to do anything with that then like laid dormant for, you know, almost 30 years and then burst out like this crazy, you know, beanstalk from magic beans that's just transported me to, to this whole world of, of, uh, possibilities and and fun and excitement um and so as far as obsession goes i you know i i i have like a pretty a pretty thick collection of 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 skateboards um i've always got like two or three brand new ones waiting to go new decks waiting to be set up and then a whole bunch of skated ones um most people you know these reissue skateboards that i that i ride they're uh most people get them to like hang them on their wall they're they're kind of intended for that because like it's like nostalgia like remember these old classic cool graphics from when you mr 45 year old man actually rode skateboards as a teenager you know buy this and put it on your wall it's like a cool thing so that's that's like what most people buy them for i buy them to skate them right i i i tear them up i i use them till they're you know completely beat to death and uh and then i you know get a get a new one and, and set it all up um i suddenly find myself really uh being into the whole like look and feel of 1980s skateboarding as well which had a lot of like neon colors really loud graphics and things and i i don't think that used to appeal to me very much but now it's like you know like neon yellow yeah man <laughs> i'll wear that <laughs> at least at least when i'm skating you know and, and i'm such a freak because i go to these skate parks and you know all the kids today like they have they have no idea of any of this stuff and what they do know about it they think is 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 kind of lame and, and old school right and so they i you know i like i can tell that they kind of you know they look at me pull up and i'm like you know, like got shortsman, like loud tank top and, you know, these beat up knee pads and this, this, what seems to them a humongous skateboard, you know, and, and they kind of are like, oh, you're like, what's this guy, you know, they're giving me sidelong glances. Who's this, who's this like old dude here? Like, can't wait to see him like fall on his ass, you know? And then now that I've gained some skills and can actually skate a pool, you know, I, I get, you know they, they see me skate and then it gets me respect and then they're like hey like what's the, with the board like why does it look like that it's like, oh like you know this is from this is from uh uh you know this is from another another era right you guys need to know your history of, of of what you're doing this is where skating came from all those tricks you're doing they were pioneered on this monster board you know and they just so they correct, correct me if i'm wrong <laughs> Skateboarding changed to the popsicle, the popsicle style skateboard because it's more efficient, more effective. Yeah, yeah. So, so just so why do you ride progress. these old decks? <laughs> yeah, through the natural progress of you know continually improving the product in the early '90s, what you said, the popsicle stick. Uh, this is the symmetrical board with a kick at each end. Um, and uh, I, the, the, that came out and it's because it facilitates your most important, well, what became the most important trick in skateboarding, which is the ollie, right? You, you use the kick on the tail to pop the board into the air and then you use the kick on the nose to level the board out and you can get the wheels higher and you get that really cool ollie that just like goes up and looks impossible and the board is somehow glued to your feet. Um, so that kind of board, it, it just makes doing that a lot easier. 
you can absolutely all any board. And I, I in fact, I, I love to, you know, a lot. That's often the first question I get is like, can you even ollie that thing? Can you even kickflip that thing? And it's like, yes. And then, you know, I do it and I show them, you know, like how high I can ollie with it. I just have to work a little harder because I don't have that counter lever on the nose, right? I have to, I have to really push into the body of the board and, and pop really hard. But I, you know, I can, I can get decent looking ollies and, um, you know, on a good day, I can, I can so, get up on top of a two, three foot ledge. So, but why? Oh, okay. So why? Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're just more fun. I mean, like, yeah, I've, I, I've ridden the more modern style board and, and, you know, and I see, I recognize immediately, oh yeah, this is, this is, uh, this is way easier. It's way more conducive to what I'm trying to do. But honestly, like, it feels kind of like cheating. <laughs> like it's, I like, I like that on this relic of a board, I have to work a little bit more for these things. But I, honestly, I, it's, it's more than that. I, like the feel of it, it definitely plays a big part, but it's honestly like, I feel kind of transported back to days of old. You know, I kind of feel it, it allows me to participate in this thing that I missed out on, that I was way too young to, 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 to get into. But when I ride one of these, I get to feel like, you know, like I'm in, you know, I'm in the Bones Brigade video show. And like, you know, I, yeah. I'm in the glory days of, of, of your back when this was that everyone was doing. I don't know. It's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a transporting experience. You know? You're uh, gleaming the cube. <laughs> exactly <So to> yes <laughs> yes i'm i'm gleaming the cube um yeah so it it's it, it just it provides a level of fun that i i think skating otherwise wouldn't hold for me and it, it definitely never grabbed me before you know um uh the the, the modern kind of skateboards and the modern style of skateboarding it, it it never grabbed me before that and so um it's it's just it's like an it's such an it's such a crucial component that got me into skating and keeps me skating so that's a that's a really good segue into my next question two more questions for you first um how would you describe the level of fulfillment in your life since that moment where something just popped at you in a in the mall and you were like i gotta have that don't know why what's the level of fulfillment you've experienced over the past six years i had a hole in my life that i didn't know i had i was completely unaware of it i thought that i was completely fulfilled i, I again i wasn't looking for a new hobby i wasn't looking for something to do uh I had a full life already, um, but but I I, I kind of discovered that actually like I've been missing this thing, and it's it just like uh, I, it maybe sounds like a little bit like over the top to say that since then like my life is complete that it it feels complete like it's like okay now like there's a balance in my life that wasn't there before. And I didn't know it wasn't there before, but like looking backwards, I can see now that actually like I've been, I've been missing this thing. I've been missing out on it. And I, I, I really do feel like it's, it's, it, it changed my life for the better, mostly in intangible ways with just, it, 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 it just, uh, it, it created a new, yeah, a new level of complexity and happiness in my life. And I think, I think the most, the most clear way that I see that, that, that it has done that besides just feeling it is that I have experienced, I guess you'd say contentment in my life ever since doing this. Um, before, like I can see that in my life, there's like a dividing line. There's before skating and after skating, right? Like life is different. Before skating, I never, I never, I don't, I don't think I ever like suffered from any like depression necessarily, but I definitely used to pine 
a lot. You know, I'd, I'd rehearse memories from my life. I would uh, think back on other times and I would just miss them inexplicably, you know, like really even like horrible moments in my life sometimes would give me the most intense feeling of like melancholy and longing. And it was just, and it was just something I just kind of carried around all the time, you know, and I, I don't, uh, I, I did, I didn't know why I was, I just thought, oh, I'm just, I'm just that kind of person, you know, I miss people and things really hard. And that's just kind of who I am. And actually since skating, I don't, I don't have those painful feelings about the past anymore. It, like, I can just look back on on yesteryear and just feel happy and they're they're just you know they, they just there's there's the balance there they're 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 good memories and and that's it they don't have to create this like intense homesickness that you know seemed to be everywhere before so i so i think that's like maybe a, a really clear result of of skating entering my my life that that i just i don't I don't hurt like that anymore. You know, I don't carry around that, that, that pain anymore. It's, it's like things are in balance, you know? Wow. Um, I didn't expect uh, this conversation about skating to go so deep. Um, And I no, and I appreciate seriously, like, and I appreciate your willingness to like go there. Um, And uh when 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 you understand how this uh this segment with you fits into this week's episode i think it'll surprise you a lot um well, it kind of surprised me i think i'm gonna this much about it too <laughs> i think people are gonna accuse me of like prepping you to say the right things <laughs> um but I, I just have to say that that i had no idea where you were gonna go with this i, I was like i don't even know if this will actually fit but uh, it's, it's just very eye-opening, some of the things that you've shared. So last oh, thing cool. I want to ask you uh, is, do you think that you chose skating or did skating choose you? <laughs> oh my gosh, this sounds so corny, but skating chose me. Like, you're, you're sure? <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Like, Why? Uh, because it was, it, had n- it was not in my mind to do this thing. It was, I would, you know, I was, I was playing in a band. I was getting ready to start grad school. I I didn't need anything else. You know, I didn't need this thing. And I, I'm also, uh, I I think I should mention, I'm not, I've never been like an athlete. I'm not an athletic person. I didn't play sports as a kid. I wasn't interested in chase ball. I hated gym class. Um, I liked to run around. I liked, you know, the, the outdoors and, and exercise, but not like I never did a sport, you know? I just, I, I, I was always such like a, kind of an outcast as far as that world went, you know? And, and that's why I gravitated toward, toward music and playing the guitar and, and because of like, that's something I could do. I, I could be creative with that. And I was, you know, I was kind of an, an artist and and a reader and and really introspective and and so uh you know i so so number one me even getting into a a, 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 an athletic thing like skateboarding was out of was out of nowhere right um and i'm not uh i'm you know i it's hard (laughs) like it's really hard for me and i've like i've skated with enough people at, at different skating levels to see like some people pick this up really quickly. They've got a lot of natural ability for it that I really don't. I have had to fight for everything in a way that I've never had to fight for anything else I've done, you know, learning to play music or studying languages, which is what I, which is what I do. Um, what my PhD has to do with. And, uh, um, that, that stuff comes really easy for me. Skateboarding does not. Right. So, it would have been really foolish for me to ever decide like, I'm going to try that. And I'm going to see if I can master it. It reached out and grabbed me and did something to me to where I said, I don't care how bad I am at this. I want to see how far I can go with it because it's not going to let me go. Like it had me by, <laughs> it had me by the heart, you know, like it just it grabbed me and 
sucked me in and like, you know, I'm in this whirlpool and I'm not going to get out of it. So I might as well enjoy the ride. So that's why I say, I don't, I don't think I chose skateboarding. Um, I love everything you're sharing. Like I've gotten chills several times because I know that, I know that feeling of passion when you're like, when you're like, you love something so much that you, that like, it's even difficult to describe it. Like, like how passionate you feel about it. Um, and I know I told you only two more questions, but one final question, uh, where are you going with it? What's like, is there, is there a plan for skateboarding in your future? Like what's yeah, I mean, like the, it's, I think that's another thing that's maybe unique about this, uh, about, about this passion for me is that it was the first time in my life where I didn't need to have a grand vision, right? Like I got into, I got into a rock band because like, maybe I'll be a rock star, you know, like that would be awesome. Like, you know, and, uh, uh, you do things with like an end in mind of like, I want to become this, or I want to have a career in this, or I want to like do a thing or change the world or whatever, you know, there's nothing like that in skating for me, except for like the next trick that I want to learn. I am just driven to get better and better with it. <laughs> and I'm not great, but you know, I'm definitely better than, than last year and the year before. And, and when I started it, zero. Um, and I've amazed myself with the things I've been able to do with it. And that, that's all I want with it. That's what keeps me going with it is just like, where can I go next? What can I learn how to do? And so, um, yeah, the, the thought of like doing anything more than that never crosses my mind. It's just, that's, that's it. That's all I want to do. It's just continue to get better and do it as much as I can and um, keep, you know, find, find a balance, uh, the right kind of balance in my life so that I can invest the time in it that it takes, especially for me to get anywhere with it. Um, so, you know, so I've got like immediate goals this year. Uh, one of my goals is I, I, I want to start doing um, uh, what, what are called aerials, which is where you, you, if you're skating like a, a large ramp or, or a, a bowl, you go out above the coping, right? Turn in the air, you, you fly for a moment and, and come back in. Right. So I'm, I'm at the coping, I'm doing all sorts of tricks up on the coping. I can get up on it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting better at that in, in the, in the very large, uh, ramps and things, but I, I can't quite get up the nerve to launch out yet <laughs> and so that's like that's like that's the next goal right is to start doing aerials and then from there it'll be what kind of variations can i do on that what what can i do next with it and um Big twist. But, <laughs> that's that that maybe is that maybe is the end goal for me <laughs> is to get to that get to that level <laughs> well, awesome thank you for spending the time uh, to dis discuss this. No um, problem. It's, it's fun to, it's fun to talk about. It's fun to get it. to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Now in my own life, there's a number of different ways that, that the sparkle happens. I can think of countless times that I am experiencing a movie or reading a book. And there is just a moment in the book that just grips me so profoundly where I feel like I'm getting a little piece of heaven as, as buddy glass would say it. All we do in life is move from one little piece of holy ground to another. It's a J.D. Salinger quote, and for me, it has always meant all we're doing is moving from one little moment of inspiration, one little moment where we feel like we're connected and that we understand why we're human. And we're moving from that to the next one. And the time between those bits of holy ground, those, those bits of inspiration... We need to compress those times so that we are constantly feeling rejuvenated by the things that interest us. Don't be afraid to go down a path that interests you is what I'm saying today, because whatever interests you will lead ultimately to inspiration for what you're creating. I wanted to share another example of this in my own life. I 
am fascinated with the age of sail. I think everything about it is so intriguing from the vernacular that they use, the terminology, to the this idea of strategy while at war at sea. And I love Master and Commander. I love the Aubrey and Maturin books. And as you can see, I'm already tangenting on this topic because I naturally just want to go in depth on the Age of Sail and boats. And I get seasick, so I have no idea why I'm interested in this. I don't think it's because I'll ever captain a ship and go out to sea for years on end. Uh, another one of my favorite books is this really esoteric read, uh, three year, no, two years before the mast, which is about a market man. Sorry, a man refers to a ship. A marketing ship where they, they travel to California and collect uh, these cow hides and then return to Boston to sell them. Anyway, it's super, super boring book. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not recommending this book unless it's sparkly to you, unless it jumps out and grabs you, because it is boring, 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 and I loved every second of it. Sorry, I totally tangented. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I was reading Moby Dick probably eight, nine years ago, and it is by far one of my favorite novels, because it's all about being at sea, and I remember the moment where the it drew me in, and like the, the interest in the book just jumped tenfold, and it sparkled. And I apologize for, for the cheesy terminology, but I don't know what else to call it. Jordan Peterson calls it the phenomenon. I call it the sparkle because it's something that flashes and grabs your eye and you know instantly that it's special. There is a segment in Moby Dick that just stood out to me so profoundly. And even now, as I'm about to read these passages, I get goose pimples on my skin because it just, it, to me, it means so much. And I felt so transported to that moment in time while reading this passage. And I wanted to share that because for me, this is, this is what the sparkle feels like. This is when you know that something has just captivated your interest and that this is important. And above all else, it is extremely fulfilling. Never before have I wanted to be at sea hunting whales. Sorry to all the uh, environmentalists out there. Um, but never before have I wanted that so badly as when reading this passage. There you stand, a hundred feet above the silent decks, striding along the deep, as if the mass were gigantic stilts, while beneath you, and between your legs, as it were, swim the hugest monsters of the sea, even as ships once sailed between the boots of the famous Colossus at Old Rhodes. There you stand, lost in the infinite series of the sea, with nothing ruffled but the waves, the tranced ship indolently rolls. The drowsy trade winds blow. Everything resolves you into languor. For the most part, in this tropic whaling life, a sublime uneventfulness invests you. You hear no news, read no gazettes. Extras with startling accounts of commonplaces never delude you into unnecessary excitements. You hear of no domestic afflictions. Bankrupt securities, fall of stocks, are never troubled with the thought of what you shall have for dinner, for all your meals, for three years, and more are snugly stowed in casks, and your bill of fare is immutable. What Herman Melville conveys in this brief passage to me is, is stunning. And I could feel myself standing at the top of a masthead, right? You're standing uh, where a crow's nest might be on a ship, and you're looking out, and in all directions it's just water, and it's just calm. And I read this at a time where I felt very stressed with school, and work, and family life, and the hopes of one day becoming something as a creative, as a filmmaker, and a writer. And to me, this just spoke so much peace to me. The idea that you're untroubled at sea, that you don't have to worry about your meals, that your mind can just explore and move on, and it's just this slow pace of life. And I know for many people, this idea of a slow-moving novel, which... Moby Dick has been criticized as being a very slow book. For me, it spoke eons. It spoke so in-depthly to me, and I just I, I knew that like something in this book, in this creation that, that Herman Melville put down on paper was meant for me. And I tell people now, I mean, I've read Moby Dick several times, and I tell people I'm never not reading Moby Dick, right? It's it's like scriptures. Um, obviously not to that level of, of spirituality, but in the fact, in the sense that 
I'm never not reading it, right? I always have Moby Dick on my Kindle, and often I will sit down and read a page or two throughout the year. And I just, I, I imagine that the rest of my life I will be reading Moby Dick. And for whatever reason, and a reason that I cannot explain, it just grips me in a way that most people, it doesn't grip. Why do I share all this? Because I'm sitting down four years ago to start a novel. And as I start writing, something becomes incredibly apparent to me at the time. And that is that ships will be a big part of my story. It, it almost happened naturally, like, like a seed finally germinating and it just explodes. And, and if you were to read the novel that I'm currently working on, you'd see that, that ships and the age of sail have inspired so much of the writing that, that I've done over the years, because it's something that I'm so passionate about. And I, and I love so much. It ended up appearing in my work. And, and I can imagine after a lifetime of writing that, that ships and whales and, <laughs> Uh, being at sea, all of these ideas, just like carnivals and world fairs and sci-fi and Buck Rogers, how that's all molded into everything that Ray Bradbury wrote. I imagine that, that Moby Dick will have a similar impact on everything I create. Not that I will ever even touch the toes of what Ray Bradbury was able to create, but I'm okay with that. And I, and I love this idea of imbuing my work with the things that I love. So again, back to this question, where does inspiration come from? It comes from the things that you love. In his book, Zen and the Art of Writing, previously referenced, Ray Bradbury talks about this. He advises every writer, and, and I extend this to all creative types, um, I extend this to anybody who's trying to achieve something, to sit down and write out the things that you love and Ray Bradbury goes on to say, write out the things that you hate. He lists a number of things that, he, that have really upset him and made him feel strongly. And he, he'll show you the short stories that came from it that were later published. And it's, it's incredible. And I, and I have done this. I've sat down and written the things that I love. And among them are Ships at Sea and uh, Seasons and the Ocean and Mountains and Fresh Snow and fields and and all of these things are are I'm I'm reading off a list right here in front of me country mountains movie theaters bikes trains whales um notebooks <laughs> these are all things that I love and the reason that you're writing them down is because the more you can understand what you love the easier it is to find inspiration because you just go to this list of things you love and instantly you can start finding solutions when you're low when you're maybe feeling a little bit of writer's block or maybe when you're wanting to be creative and you're not quite sure what to do with it, draw on the things that you love. I wanted to share just a couple more examples today of powerful writers who have done the same thing. Tolkien, uh, as you know, if you've listened to any other episodes, he is one of my all-time favorite authors because his books inspired me. You know, They were so deeply inspirational to me, especially when I was just getting my start writing. For the majority of his life, I don't think Tolkien would have described himself as a fantasy author, first and foremost. He would have described himself as a linguist. He loved languages. He knew so much about languages and their, am I going to use the right word, entomology. Sorry, my sister is an etymologist, which is a person who studies insects, not to be confused with an entomologist or entomology. Am I getting, I might be flipping that around. I'm going to have to look it up. Anyway, Tolkien was one of those people that dove deep and understood the history of languages and how they changed over time and how they influ influence one another. And he would have described himself first and foremost as a linguist to the point that it permeates his works. The thing that most people think is so incredible about Lord of the Rings is it feels so real because the languages in this fantasy world that he built follow historical and factual rules and reasoning behind the way that languages develop in it. And it permeates his work. A little bit back, I purchased a book called Letters to Father Christmas. And uh, when his kids were young, Tolkien would write these fantastical letters from the North Pole, telling his kids all about what was happening at the North Pole. And it's so interesting to read these letters because 
it just has the fingerprints of Tolkien all over these letters, right? It's Father Christmas. He lives at the North Pole. There's a polar bear that lives with them and writes, but the polar bear speaks a language and then there's goblins that show up and they speak a different language. And throughout the letters, he even writes in these other languages. And you're just like, oh my gosh, this is so like, this is what Tolkien does. Like when he creates a world, he's like, okay, here's the world. Here's what's happening. But most importantly, what's the language? What are the symbols? What's the alphabet? What do they use to communicate? And it's just like right where his mind goes. And you and I and anyone else who reads Lord of the Rings, Silmarillion, any of the works of Tolkien can tell you that that, that passion of his, that deep interest in languages just enlivens what he created. I had a really awesome conversation with a friend of mine. We actually have a little writing club. Um, and uh, we were talking about his current work that he's uh, writing. And this is crazy. And I hope Landon's okay with me sharing this. But he was showing me the map that he was preparing. And Landon is uh, has his PhD in uh, geology and he loves geography and he loves, um, he's a bit of a scientist <laughs> and in his writing, these things are really important to him. And so what he did was he, and so what he did is he went and he took snapshots of different parts of the world and he brought them into a mapping software which i guess these exist and he adjusted them turned them around brought a few pieces together and he essentially made a continent on his map that is inspired from real locations but he did this so that he knew that you know because a lot of times when we're making a map with a fantasy book, you just throw up some lines and you're like, that's the world. It looks like that. Why? Because I liked how it looked. And he's like, no, uh, land masses don't move that way. He understands rocks and, you know, the, the massive geological history of the earth. And he's like, you can't just throw lines on a map. Like there are so many forces at play that shape the world that we live in. So he had to start with reality and bring it in and adjust it to, to fit what he was trying to create. But ultimately at its root, it is a real map, meaning that the the lines and the mountains and the, the valleys and the shapes are ultimately real, right? He, he kept landmarks such as mountains, rivers, coastlines, uh, he, he kept it all so that his fantasy novel will be based in a land that geologically matches reality. So this is a perfect example of the same thing that Tolkien did with languages. And because that is so important to my friend Landon, like it inspires his work. And as we were talking about his map, and he was feeling a little sheepish, actually, that he's like, I know, I spend so much time on the map, I should probably be writing. And I said, actually, hold on a second. Like, look at Tolkien and the reason that, that he wrote and what he loved about writing was creating a, a true mythology based in languages and it, and it just inspired his work. Maps and geology and geography will play a big role in everything that you're writing in this fantasy novel. And my advice to him was let that permeate your writing. In fact, if your main character is a map maker, well, now it's elevated from just being place and time and it becomes actually an element of the story. So going back to our thesis, this question of how do you find inspiration when you are in the creative process or when you're struggling to get into the creative process? And the answer being that you should apply your interests, you should pursue your interests. I wanted to share one other method that has been a huge help for me in finding inspiration. When I was in college, uh, a friend of mine invited me to go listen to a poetry reading. And it was interesting, and a bunch of different students got together and shared their poetry from the podium. And at the end, one of their professors got up and shared a quick, uh, funny poem, a humorous poem that he had written. And it was really good, but I don't remember a thing about it. The thing that stuck out to me is he said something about his commonplace notebook. He's like, oh, I, I, I needed, this came to me because blah, 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 and something happened, and I pulled out my commonplace notebook, and I turned to my friend who was in this teacher's class, this professor's class, and I was like, commonplace notebook, and they're like, yeah, you know, a notebook that you keep with you all the time, so it's always in a common place, like your pocket or your backpack, 
And I've just loved this idea. First off, that's a really cool title for a notebook you keep with you, a commonplace notebook. And I've tried to keep one with me ever since. Now mine's digital, it's on my phone, and you can see a little note in my phone that says commonplace notes. And it's where I jot down anything that jumps out at me, anything that leaps out out at me as being interesting or unique. And whether it's a character or a story idea, or you know when you're driving down the freeway and you're just like, huh, you know what would be interesting? And suddenly, like, an idea percolates, and it's almost like this Mercury figure, you know, this muse hopping onto your shoulder and being like, what about this idea? You need a place to write those things down. And so, in honor of pursuing our interests, write down the things that interest you. Anytime that something sparkles or draws your attention and that you think might be of worth, put it down in your commonplace notebook. Everyone that is a writer or a creative type, any artist out there should have a commonplace notebook that they keep with them all the time. The last thing that I'll leave with you is don't let them steal your sparkle. Don't let someone tell you that what you're interested in is no good. Because as you can see with the story of Buck Rogers that we opened this podcast with, there are going to be people that line up and say what you're interested in is no good. I have no idea why people feel the need to tell others that what they like is crap or that it's no, not good enough. I, I don't know why people feel the need. I don't know if they feel threatened or what it is or people just like voicing their opinion. But at the end of the day, you, you can't let go of the things that you love. I will forever be a Twilight apologist. They're not for me. I, I, I've only read parts of them, and they don't sparkle for me. But I understand that there are a ton of people out there that just loved those Twilight books. And, and because of the way that they were handled uh, in, in the media and social media and the opinions that people have about them, I believe there there's a lot of inspiration that has been lost on people from those books because they're they're too afraid to admit now that they like those books and I say if you like them do dive in and 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 enjoy that world because it will ultimately fulfill you don't let them steal the sparkle if you love something grab onto it dive deep into it and you will ultimately find very very rewarding things that will inform your creativity that will permeate the things that you're trying to either write or create. 